We're going to be in the book of Matthew this morning, chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children with him and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You have your Bible open to Matthew 18. title of the message today is very straightforward. It's not very creative. The title of the message is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Let me tell you what I'm not going to do today. I am not going to try and sell you on forgiveness this morning. What do I mean by that? You know, when you go to buy a new car, you uh, look at the car and the salesperson is going to tell you all the benefits of buying that car. You know, it's got great fuel economy, it's got new tires, it's got the latest technology, uh, it comes with its own butler. Uh, whatever the sales pitch might be, uh, if you buy this car, uh, you are going to receive and engage in all these various benefits. And so oftentimes that's how we approach forgiveness. Forgiveness is that terrible thing we know we're supposed to do, nobody really wants to do it, and so therefore we're going to try and pitch the benefits of forgiveness like it's an exercise program. Everybody hates it, but it's beneficial enough you ought to do it. Well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and, and so maybe now you're going to leave. I guess this is your shot. Um, what we are going to do is look at this parable and a number of other what we're going to call uh, sort of biblical case studies of, of forgiveness and understand basically two aspects of forgiveness. This. Forgiveness is by the mercy of God and forgiveness is by the power of God. And, and my feeling is, my opinion is, if we can understand from the scripture that forgiveness is by the mercy of God and forgiveness is by the power of God, it then puts it in the realm of something we can engage with, with God and others in a way that's realistic and uh, beneficial to all of us. So that's basically the outline of the message. Forgiveness by the mercy of God, forgiveness by uh, the power of God. So by way of introduction, we need to think about a couple of different things other than forgiveness. What we tend to do is humans who have rebelled against God, and that's all of us, humans have rebelled against God. What we do is we take things that God has given us, things that are good, 
and then we twist them just a bit so then they're no longer good. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. These are things you know of. God has given us the opportunity in marriage to engage with physical intimacy with another. What we then do is twist that a bit and instead we have lust and adultery. We take something that is good, physical intimacy with another, God says here's how that occurs. We change that and now instead of having a closeness and intimacy that's God ordained and brings glory to God, we twist it and now it becomes, uh, instead of uh, love, uh, lust and adultery. Okay, another example, less awkward maybe. We, uh, God has given us something we enjoy. We enjoy working and providing for ourselves and others. God gives us the opportunity to use our hands, use our smarts, use our resources to work hard and provide for ourselves and others. And that's a, a meaningful, important part of what it means to be a human made in the image of God, is to work and provide for yourself and others by God's grace. What we then do is twist that, and instead of working as worship, we worship working. And now it shifts from providing instead to working hard enough, I no longer need God. And what is that called? Greed and idolatry. So we take something good, work, provision, enjoyment, and we twist it again, just a bit, exclude God, and instead of work and provision being an act of worship, we worship work and provision, and the fancy theological term for that is greed and idolatry. Two more. Another one is rest. God calls us, being made in the image of God, to shut it down every now and then. To say, it's an act of worship to say, God has provided, God will provide, so I don't have to work every minute of the day. I can shut it down and rest and know that God will provide. And I can take time to rest and recreate. Whatever day you want to do that or a couple of days you do that. We twist that just a bit. And some of us enjoy rest so much, well, we never stop. And the Bible calls that laziness, slothfulness. We like that rest thing so much, let's just keep doing that. And now we've taken something that is good, rest, and turned it into something rebellious, laziness and slothfulness. The last one is that which applies here to our topic in the parable, which is forgiveness. God has made us in his image and he has built into us a sense of right and wrong. And we have a sense when wrong is done, it ought to be made right. And we call that a sense of justice. When I am wronged or I see others wrong and it builds up in me a sense of tension, that ought not to be and it ought to be fixed, and I or that other person ought to be made right, that is a sense of justice. And we have, and that's an important part of who we are. It's an important part of being made in the image of God. And then we twist that a little bit and say, you know what? It turns out God is not a real, doesn't do a real good job of making things right, certainly not on my timetable. So I'm gonna make it my job to make sure things get fixed, and so I'm going to take, what do we call that? I'm gonna take revenge. I'm going to get mine. Or if I'm not strong enough, or I'm not powerful enough, or I don't have the resources to take revenge, then I'm going to hold on to that bitterness in my soul against you, and you will never take that from me. Because that's my way of saying, that's mine. And you can't fix that. I have control over this. And so we've taken something that is good. Justice, what is right, ought to be made right. And that's a good thing. And now we've excluded God from the, the equation and now we engage in resentment and revenge. And the parable comes at that in our hearts and says, forgive. Why do we forgive? How do we forgive? 
Let's look at the parable. First of all, we forgive by the mercy of God. Look at verse 21 of Matthew chapter 18. Pat didn't read it. I excluded it on purpose so that we could look at it uh, afresh, so to speak. Peter came up to Jesus and he said, Lord, how often will I uh, forgive my brother when he sins against me? Should I forgive him seven times? And uh, we know, many of you uh, probably have heard this before, the, the common teaching of the rabbis at that time was you should forgive somebody three times, and on the fourth time, sayonara, no forgiveness for you. And so there's sort of the sense that maybe uh, um, Peter, knowing that Jesus was upping the ante on forgiveness, was sort of twice and again a little bit more what the rabbis were teaching, really not. Uh, Peter was really trying, I think, to press into what Jesus has been teaching. He was saying, uh, should we continue to forgive our brothers over and over again? Is that some, is it repeated forgiveness? Uh, but there was a sense of limitation to it, but uh, he's saying, should we forgive our brothers over and over again? And Jesus' response is intended to be shocking to Peter and us. He says, no, 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 I'm not saying you should forgive them over and over again. I'm saying you should forgive them over and over and over and over again. When should I stop forgiving them? In a sense, Jesus' answer is, when you think you've forgiven them enough, you haven't yet. And when you have finally gotten to the place where you've now I've forgiven them enough, well, well no, now you haven't. The, the forgiveness, and, and the, the immediate question would be, first of all, why in the world would we do that? That seems terrible. And secondly, how could we do that? So Jesus tells this parable, therefore the kingdom of God is like, or can be compared to, uh, this king and really when whenever just a quick reminder on parables Jesus says starts many of them the kingdom of God can be compared to or is like that comparison is the whole parable not just the next thing so he's not saying the kingdom of God is like the king the king is a part of the parable the kingdom of God can be compared to let me tell you a story this great king he had a servant who owed him a ton of money. In fact, so much money, a common laborer would have to work several lifetimes to repay it. Now, there's no sense in figuring out the inflationary value of what this could have been today. It doesn't matter. What we do know is a common worker, a servant, would have had to work several lifetimes to be able to pay back this king. So therefore, this debt was not able to be paid back. The king had come to a place where he was settling accounts. He was looking at his books. He's got accounts payable. He's got accounts receivable. He wants to square these things up. And so he's calling in servants to square up his account. This servant is brought in and he, the master says, well, you're never going to be, pay, be able to pay this back. What I'm going to do is write this off as a bad debt. This debt's never going to get paid. I'm going to take a charge against the books. At least I'll get the tax deduction on the end of the year. Well, I don't know if that's the case. Their tax system is probably different than ours. So he's going to write it off as a bad debt, but to mitigate and minimize the loss, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell you and your whole family. Then I'm going to take that limited amount I'm going to receive, a very small amount compared with the total debt. I'm going to apply that to the debt and, and then write off the difference. I'm doing the best he can to minimize his losses, really. And look at the response of this servant. The servant fell on his knees. First question. Why wasn't he on his knees already? Really, you waited till now. Okay, anyway. Imploring the king, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. What are the chances of him paying everything? Zero. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him. Paid, look at what he says. Forgave him that debt. And everybody, what? 
no, 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 no. Of all the options available to this king, that's, that's the one we would not pick. Here's the one I would have settled on. Are you ready for the one? And Jesus never asked me my opinion of the parables, it turns out. You just have the guy make monthly payments for the rest of his life. Say, what can you afford? Tell me what you're going to afford. You're probably going to get more over the course of this guy's life than even selling him, right? Have him just pay. You know what? You pay me 100 bucks a month until you die. And then I'm going to mitigate my losses. And then at least I know to some degree I'm going to get a little bit of an income off of you. And then if the king would have been thinking, this guy just didn't get it. He could have also made the guy's wife and kids work. He could have generated a halfway decent income off this guy's family. But lo and behold, this king forgave the whole debt. He said, forget it. No debt. You are free to go. He writes the whole debt off. Why did the king do that according to the parable? Look at verse 27. Out of pity. Another way of translating that, out of compassion. He was moved by the, the, the place that the servant was in, and he was moved by it. He was emotionally moved. He felt sad for him. He felt pity for him. He wished this servant wasn't in this situation. He saw he had it in his power to get this servant out of this situation, and he was moved in his being to do something. So just simply out of compassion. Nothing having to do with the servant, nothing having to do with the debt, nothing having to do with a good financial decision. He just was moved by the situation, and he just forgave him the whole debt, the whole thing. Scene one. Now let's look at scene two. It begins at verse 28. That same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a significantly less amount of money. Again, there's no sense in figuring out the inflation rate of a few hundred denarii. Here's what we do know. He owed the king way more than what this servant owed him. Another way of putting it, this servant could not repay the king in many lifetimes what he owed the king. However, he was owed a debt from this servant that could be repaid maybe in six months or a year. So he was owed a debt that actually could be repaid. And when you compare it to the debt he had been forgiven, it was significantly less. What's important about this scene as it plays out is the roles are reversed and the, the other servant that owed the smaller amount to this servant, he behaves in almost exactly the same way that this servant behaved before the king. Look at it. He said, listen, pay what you owe. And he's choking him. In verse 29, so, so his fellow servant fell down and he pleaded with him. And he says almost the exact same thing. Have patience with me and I will repay you. When the first servant said to the king, have patience with me, I will pay you. Was he telling the truth or not? He may have wanted to pay him, but he couldn't. There's no possible way he could have repaid him. Okay. This servant, could he repay this uh, much smaller amount? And the answer is yes. Good steady work, maybe a second job on the weekend, he could pay this debt in, like I say, six months or a year, he could have this handled. And he says, have patience with me and I will pay you. The servant refused him and had him put in prison until he should pay the debt. In prison, when is that debt going to be paid? I haven't been in prison recently. It's been since college, I think. It's a long time ago. I'm going to leave. I'm not going to tell you the story. They don't, I don't think they pay. I don't think that's your job. Maybe you can buy stuff in the, in the prison store, but you're not making enough money in prison that you can pay debts outside prison. 
And that's, that's the way it works now. It's the way it worked then. He basically locks him into a payable debt he will never be able to pay. A debt that is payable becomes unpayable because of the way he treated his fellow servant. Scene three. The other servants see what has happened, and they, the word is, at least in my translation of Scripture, the English Standard Version, they are greatly distressed. Why are they greatly distressed at seeing how he treated his fellow servant? Number one, because how he treated the fellow servant, absent all other issues, absent even the relationship he had with the king, the way he treated his fellow servant was distressing on its own. On its own, the way he treated that fellow servant was distressing. It was even more so distressing knowing how he had been treated by the king, that the king had forgiven such a grand debt, and that he had treated his fellow servant in such a terrible way, it was distressing to these servants. And they go to the king and they say, you got to do something about this. And the king calls him in and he says, you are wicked because I forgave you all your debt in your pleading. Should you not also have shown mercy? So now we see the equation of forgiveness. Having been shown mercy, mercy must be shown. In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. Jailers is a fine word. Whose uh, scripture says tortures? Torturers? Anybody have torturers in yours? You got torturers? Okay, that's good too. Jailers are torturers and the torturers are so it's not that it's mistranslation it's one adds a little bit of the connotation to it that's behind it and likely that was the case he was being delivered into prison and the intention was his time in prison would be uh, not fun the intention was you know this was Chateau Dief. you know every every year he's going to be beaten to remind him that a year has uh, come and gone so in his anger, the master delivered him into the jailers. Scene one, the king has mercy. The king had compassion. And the king's mercy is completely and totally out of line and unexpected. The king's mercy is, is completely out of line and completely unexpected. Nobody imagines a king would act this way. And what Jesus is doing, especially in the last verse, he says, So my heavenly father... He is saying, look at how this king is. This is how God is. His mercy is unexpected and in some ways out of line. His mercy shouldn't be extended to those who owe him, which is everyone. His mercy is such that if everybody who receives this mercy or sees this mercy given to others, the correct response to God's mercy is saying, That's, I think you're going overboard. I think you simmer down a little bit on the mercy thing. People are going to take advantage of you. But this is what God's mercy is like. And having received mercy, this servant should have understood his way of responding to mercy is what? Showing mercy. His mercy is unexpected. And his lack of mercy to his fellow man, his fellow servant, is described not as merely a lack of mercy. It's described as wickedness in verse 32. The wickedness of the servant is he had no mercy. Now, why should this servant have mercy? Is it because he is merciful? Absolutely not. Most of us have trouble showing mercy, especially where it's most deserved. He should have been merciful because he had been given so much mercy. Do you see how that's working here? That's what Jesus is trying to tell in the parable. He's not saying just gin up some mercy in you. He's, no, no, no. He's saying you have received this, this unexpected, 
a load of mercy. So therefore, take that mercy and hand it off to those who need it from you. And his cruelty at failing to show mercy, having received mercy, is profoundly distressing to all who observe it. And this is Jesus' point. To have received mercy and not pass that mercy along is described in this parable as distressingly cruel, even wicked. The wickedness of the servant is because he had no mercy. And the king, in dealing with the wicked servant, expressed justice on the servant. The servant was cruel. The king was just. Forgiveness by the mercy of God. Jesus said this. He was asked this question, what's the most important uh, command? And uh, I think he replied this way, if I remember correctly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And anybody remember the other one? No, we don't like that one. Love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus does in this parable, I think brilliantly, of course, is shows us how that works. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why in the world would we do that? Number one, he deserves it. He's God. But number two, here anyway, because of his great mercy. How in the world can I show love to my neighbor? Having received mercy, I have plenty, don't I? And don't you? So therefore, I can take that mercy and extend it to others. We can see how our love and relationship with God are related to our love and relationship with others. If we love God because of his great mercy toward us, one of the primary ways we express love toward God because of his mercy is by showing love towards those in our lives through mercy towards them. We love others through forgiveness by the mercy of God. Have you ever not felt merciful? Have you ever felt like, you know, I, I, I really don't care what their problem is? Anybody? Is it? It's just me. That's yeah, weird. Well, it turns out the Bible is fantastic. You may be like me. You're saying, well, guess what? I don't feel anything towards this person. I don't, I don't want it to work out. I don't want them forgiven. In fact, I want them judged. Well, what's great about this is you don't have to give them your mercy. What God is saying is give them the mercy he has given to you. What, in order for that to happen, though, what must happen by, of course, the work of the Holy Spirit is we have to actually recognize how much mercy God gave us. Here's the catch for religious people. I know there's no religious people at church on a Sunday morning. We think we're fairly awesome, and so God only had to give us a little mercy. Like, like we were pretty much all the way into heaven, and he just had to top it off. And that's a problem for religious people. If God did not have to give me much mercy, how much do I have to give? But when I recognized by his word, I wasn't almost into heaven. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I needed all of his mercy. Then I have received much mercy. I have much to give. So the catch here is, in order to have a lot of mercy to give, I have to recognize how big my debt was. And that's a challenge. Just, if we're just honest, that can be a challenge for religious people. Because we don't think we need that much mercy. We think we just have to shore it up a little bit. When the fact is, without his mercy, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Forgiveness is by the mercy of God. Now, let's look at a couple of case studies. Moving off the parable, we'll visit back in just a minute. And look at some case studies at what is forgiveness. Forgiveness is by the power of God. 
uh, you might have a small child. Say you have a seven-year-old kid, right? And seven-year-old, I'm, this is how tall a seven-year-old kid might be. I have a point of reference about this tall. And you say to that seven-year-old kid, you're playing basketball, hey, could you dunk the basketball, please? And the seven-year-old kid, of course, what's he going to say? Yeah, no problem, I got this, right? Of course, can he? Is it well on maybe a little junior hoop? But let's say we're playing on a 10-foot regulation hoop. Can the kid dunk the ball? And the answer is what? No, he can't. He just doesn't have the height, doesn't have the muscle development. It's just not there yet, right? Now, what if Shaquille O'Neal walks into the gym and picks that kid up by the waist and holds him up, right? Now the kid's feet are above the rim, right? <laughs> and now you say to the kid being held up by Shaq, dunk the ball. What's he going to do? Two hands as hard as he can because now he's up. But he's not doing it by his power. He's doing this by someone else's power. And what we need to understand about forgiveness is this is precisely how forgiveness works. Forgiveness is hard if you need to be awesome enough to forgive. Forgiveness can happen if God is going to give you the power to forgive. And that's what's going to happen. So let's look at a couple of case studies. The first one is in Psalm chapter 9, Psalm 9, 1 through 4. Psalm 9, 1 through 4. The verses uh, that I'm going to turn to are going to be up on the screen. But you're, of course, welcome to turn in your own copy of Scripture. Um, there, Psalm 9, 1 through 4, it starts to the choir master, according to Muthlaban, Muthlaban, a psalm of David. So what you want to do is, while I'm reading it, have that melody in your head. Got it? Okay, good. Verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name O Most High. So how the psalm starts is a, a, an act of worship extolling the greatness of God, saying, I, with my whole heart, moved in emotion, will recount all of your wonderful deeds. So David here is thinking through all of the things God has done for him, and in those fantastic things, he is then praising God for those things. He will give thanks to God. So he's, he's expressing thanks, and not a cold-hearted, distant thank you. It's, it's a moved with gratitude for everything he says. Look at how he starts verse 2. I will be glad and exalt in you, saying I will have a sense of happy feelings towards God. I will sing your praise, most high God. So all of this is him being moved in emotions and spirit for God's grace, greatness and is praising him. How is this possible given the fact that so many people in David's life wanted to hurt him? You have Saul that wants to hurt him. You have people within his administration, all the sons of Zariah and Joab, constantly working behind the scenes, sometimes helping, sometimes doing murderous deeds. There was always intrigue going on behind the scenes, and David throughout his entire uh, life always had people biting at his heels, seeking to destroy him. How could David uh, sing praises to the Lord knowing so many people were seeking to harm him? Look what it says in verses 3 and 4. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish, listen, before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. First thing to understand is by forgiveness is by the power of God is this. Many of us have been harmed by others in significant ways, maybe even in unspeakable ways. Harmed personally, harmed emotionally, harmed 
financially, harmed physically, harmed spiritually, in ways that we can't even consider, nor do we even want to think about it. And we say, how could I ever deal with that? And, and what we see here in David is he is saying, I'm not going to let you off the hook for the harm you caused. However, it is not my job to figure that out. So what he does with all those enemies is he says, for you, God, have maintained my just cause. So he takes those who have harmed him and then in prayer offers them to God and say, God, you do your thing. Whatever that is, I'm fine with. So he takes the justice that he desires and rightfully desires and says, God, I can't make this right. If I am going to seek to make this right, it's going to be resentment and it's going to be revenge. However, if I give it to you and can trust you to make this right, I know justice will be done. And so the reason David, having been harmed and continuing to be pursued by others, can sing praises to God is he takes that resentment, that bitterness, that revenge, and he says, I'm not good at this. If I do this, it's going to be done wrong. I'm going to give these to God. This is what's great about reading through the Psalms on a regular basis. There are several Psalms that when you read them, you say, I don't think this should be in the Bible. Where uh, David and others are praying God's judgment on others. And this is a great way to step out of the rule of revenge and say, God, I don't know what ought to be done, but God, you know what they did to me? Handle your business. Do what you got to do. I don't know what that is. But God, I trust that you will make things right. And we should be uh, confident in the power of God to make things right according to his purposes. And it's a way of releasing, not into the, the nether realms, not into the, the universe, my, my hard feelings. It's saying, no, God, you handle this. I expect this to be handled. Will God handle things that are in, aren't just? Yes. When is he going to do that? And just let me ask your experience real quick. I know what mine is. Has God routinely been checking your calendar on when he's supposed to get things done? Because I have been trying to get him on schedule. It's not happening, is it? When is the when, when we do that, we're saying, God, the when is up to you. I'm not going to say it's got to be next week. I'm not going to say it's got to be. I'm going to say it's released into your hands, God. And that's what David is doing here. And as Christians, we also ought to, when we have been harmed, we say, how, in the, how is God's power going to allow me to forgive? I hand over to God the role of the one who's got to make things just. And I say, God, I forgive. You make it right according to your purposes. All right? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. Matthew 5, 38. The second way we forgive by the power of God is to see our enemies the way God sees his enemies. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sh uh, sue you and take your tunic, excuse me, let him have your cloak as well. Sorry, I got a little emotional there where that guy sued me for my shirt. I'm kidding. That was ridiculous. I'm sorry. Verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of, the father, of your father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even Gentiles do that? Do that? Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, or therefore be like your Father. Forgiveness is by the power of God when we allow by the power of His Spirit to see our enemies the way God sees His enemies. How does God see His enemies? That's you and me, dead in our trespasses and sins. And in our rebellion, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning, sees us as enemies and says, I will seek the way in which a loving relationship can be restored. Since God has loved his enemies, that is you and I, by his same power, we can seek to express love and forgiveness to our enemies. You say, well, how is it possible to do that? If it is possible for God to love us, his sworn enemies, then it is possible by his spirit for us to love our enemies and to seek his strength to do that. Forgiveness by the power of God. First thing we said is, let God deal with our adversary. Second thing is, see our adversary or our enemy the way God sees his enemies. And finally, forgiveness by the power of God is forgive the way Jesus does. Look at Matthew 27, 44. Matthew 27, 44. Jesus is on the cross. To his left and right are two robbers also on their own crosses. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. We'll see in our next verse we're going to read. What was that reviling? If you are God, save yourself, get off the cross. And while you're at it, get us off our crosses. And so on the cross, Jesus had robbers on their own crosses mocking him. Can't think of a worse possible time to have somebody mocking you than when you're being crucified, especially when you are being crucified on behalf of all of those who are doing the mocking. Right? Look at Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Verse 40, But the other rebuked him, saying... Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied to him, that ship sailed, bro. Sorry, you were making fun of me, and that really hurt. All right, I'm on a cross. Do you not see me on a cross up here? You think you could just make fun of me and just like that? Oh, sorry about that. Can I go to heaven? Right? Isn't that, don't you find that offensive? I find it deeply offensive. You don't seem bothered by it at all. What does Jesus say to him? Truly, I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. Hanging on the cross, a guy who maybe an hour earlier was making fun of him. Jesus just simply forgives him. And notice what the, the thief on the cross didn't promise because he couldn't. He didn't promise to clean up his language. He didn't promise to quit drinking. He didn't promise to be nicer to his wife and kids. He didn't promise to stop running yellow lights at McAndrews and Crater Lake Avenue. Man, that's irritating. 
He didn't promise any of these things. Why didn't he promise these things? Because he's going to live like an hour. What's he going to do? There's nothing to promise. His job is basically to believe in Jesus and die well. And what does Jesus say to this guy who just simply asks for forgiveness and has nothing to offer? What's he say? See you in heaven. I'm going to get there first. I'll get it ready for you. I mean, isn't that unbelievable? Jesus forgives those who hurt him at the worst possible time freely. How could we possibly forgive others who hurt us at when? When did they hurt us? The worst possible time. It's like they planned it. It's like they knew what kind of day I was having. How could we possibly? We can't do it. It's only by the power of him who was on the cross for us that we could possibly have the power to forgive others who have wronged us. We forgive by the power of God because we leave our enemies in the hands of God, because we love our enemies the way God loved his, us, and because Jesus is the one who has power in us by his spirit to allow us to forgive even those who have hurt us at the worst possible time. Forgiveness is this in summary, I am not owed by you any longer. The debt is canceled. It doesn't mean I have to pretend it didn't hurt. It doesn't mean I have to let you into my inner circle of trust again. It doesn't mean I have to act like it didn't happen. It doesn't mean we're best buds again. It doesn't mean we're ever buds again. But it does mean I agree with God, you don't owe me anything. And I can offer that kind of uh, mercy. I said this in the first service, so I'm going to have to repeat it here in the second. Uh, we're going a little bit long. I'll probably just be five minutes over. Is that okay? Because I honestly don't care. Um, and I don't want you to, I didn't want to give the wrong impression like I was concerned about it. Um, okay, just quick, uh, one or two, maybe three quick ideas to maybe settle this. Somebody has said this about shame. Uh, just real quick definition again, the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt says, I feel bad that I have done something wrong. Shame is, I feel bad because I am a bad person. It, kind of the difference between shame and guilt. How do we deal with shame? And one, one person said this. I, I think I agree with it. Uh, one of the best fixes for shame is for someone else to acknowledge the depth of my wrongness and still accept me. So I'm driving my car. I hit a dog and kill it. And I say to you, I, I was driving down the road. I hit a dog and I killed it. And you say to me, it's no big deal. Dogs, dogs run out in the road. And I'm sure you were driving safe. And... Um, so you're fine. Okay, well, my shame hasn't gone away because I, in my heart I'm going, well, you don't know what I really did. And so you, if you knew what I was like, you wouldn't accept me. You're only accepting me because you think you know what I'm like. Okay, but another person said, what, you had a dog? What happened? He said, did it run out in front of you? Oh, no, 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 I didn't like that breed. So, so it ran out? Oh, no, I swerved on the sidewalk. I got it. And really? That's, that's terrible. Yeah, no, I had to back up again. I had to go for it twice. Say, so that's terrible. And this is a terrible example. And none of us would ever do this, okay? The point is, I have done something shameful. And I, now something has happened that has shifted in me. I say, that was terrible, what I did. And you don't gloss it over. You say, you're right, that's terrible. But I accept you. I, I receive you in your terribleness. And now, having been received for who I am... Shame can fall away. This is what God does. And I saw some of you reacting when I told this dog story. Some of you put your, head, your hands in your faces because you you're offended by it. What we've done to God is worse 
than my silly dog story. And he receives us. And the reason shame can fall away is he knows exactly how bad we really are, how bad what we did really is, he forgives. And because he receives who we really are because of what Christ did, shame can fall away, can it? He, he knows what's going on in your heart and mind, and he says, my son Jesus, that on the cross so I can receive you wholly. I have to be able to receive that kind of mercy, the kind of mercy that receives people who ought not to receive mercy if I'm going to have any hope of having mercy to pass off on to others. When shame is, is gone. Finally, this, uh, we'll end with this. Uh, forgiveness is very, 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 very difficult, right? Are we agreed? Forgiveness is, so I might say this, forgiveness is only done by the power of God through His Holy Spirit working in us. So if you are one of those, like all of us, that there are a few things that are hanging on and you can't let it go, I don't want you to walk out of here saying, I can't get this. I want you to walk out saying, I'm going to seek the Lord by prayer and keep seeking His power through prayer. Uh, and it may be a journey that takes your whole life. To, to keep seeking the Lord, don't give up. Lord, I can't let this go. I know you should handle it, but I continue to hold on to this bitterness. Pray, seek the Lord's help. Ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in your heart, in your heart that you might have the, the ability over time to pass mercy on to others. And he can do it in our hearts.